Hello and welcome to another edition of the Confession Box podcast where we're joined by, I suppose what we could call now a permanent guest, Michael, but we're probably the richer for it. I feel like part of the furniture <laughs> brand, but it's always a pleasure to be here. We love uh, having you. Although here. I would like it if the furniture was a little bit more comfortable. Oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 uh, definitely a change is needed there. But so let's discuss the Irish Catholic in detail this week. It's a very, fun, it's a fantastic edition brimming with uh, interesting stories. Uh, we begin today with a very striking front page news story about uh, an Ethiopian nun who has witnessed the horrors of war in her country but still amazingly proclaiming that she would rather die than fail in her duty of care she also heralded ireland's rich history of humanitarian nuns so tell me more about this remarkable woman this is the heart of the missionary story brandon and uh, this is sister medine tesfe and she would be the first to say that she is one of many in fact she'd be really embarrassed by this conversation now but she is a daughter of charity of saint vincent de paul based in the tigray region of ethiopia now for anyone who hasn't been following the news very closely there's a lot of conflict and tension in Tigray at the moment between the central Ethiopian government and militant groups there in Tigray, influenced also by the uh, the government of uh, Eritrea. It's a powder keg, literally. And uh, what the sister is saying is that she would rather die than leave the people of that region because this is one of the tragedies of these conflicts. And we see this all over the world with the best will in the world. The first people to leave these tragic circumstances are quite often the aid agencies, the international NGOs and actually the last people to remain are the missionaries and when you speak to those missionaries and you ask them about the fears that they experience it's actually really humbling uh, a humbling experience because they live their lives alongside the people they don't see themselves as outsiders that have come there to help they see themselves as people who are very much part of that community and that's what Sister Medina is saying uh, in the Irish Catholic this week that she would rather die she would rather lose her life than abandon the people there and what's interesting about that she was in Ireland to receive an award from Troker. Troker, of course, is the overseas development agency of the Catholic Church here. And that award that she received was named for Archbishop Oscar Romero. Archbishop Oscar Romero was the Archbishop of San Salvador and El Salvador who was killed there, who was assassinated there precisely for standing with his people, precisely for speaking up on behalf of the most vulnerable. And this is the story of missionaries all over the world. Wherever you go around the world, wherever you find the world's most vulnerable people, you will find women and men religious, Catholic religious, living their lives there alongside of them. And one of the things that the Ethiopian sister was praising as well because sometimes we forget uh, about this long before Ireland was an independent country long before Ireland had its own independent diplomatic service we had a network of ambassadors and emissaries all over the world, the Irish missionaries. Okay, you can go back to uh, Columbanus and uh, the evangelization of Europe after the Dark Ages, but then the huge missionary movements of the 19th century, the 20th century, uh, Bishop Shanahan, the Legion of Mary, people like Adele Quinn, Alfie Lamb, they brought the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's precisely now and President Mary McAleese used to always say this whenever she visited Africa. There was always a warm welcome for her wherever she went in Africa because people remembered the example of the Irish sisters, the Irish brothers, the Irish priests who had been there. And that's a really important legacy for us to be proud of. And we're all aware domestically of... It's, it's a sorrying state, but the tarnished legacy of nuns in this country. We also have to remember that in our midst are these remarkable women who are so unassuming, maybe in their 90s in a nursing home in a remote area, but have such amazing stories and have involved themselves in so many worthy 
situations and, and, and have always been very resilient and unfailing in, in their efforts. These women in particular were uh, were trailblazers and in fact they uh, achieved abroad very often what they may not have achieved in a more stifling Ireland. I met a sister at a reception a, a number of years ago and uh, true to form she was extremely humble. Uh, she told me she was a retired missionary. She used to work in Nigeria. I said what did you do in Nigeria and she said oh I was a teacher. It was only when I was speaking to someone else who knew her who told me that she ran the only secondary school in the area, a secondary school for eight and a half thousand girls. So she was responsible for the education of all of the girls in that wide, vast area in northern Nigeria. So the sad pity in some ways is that so many of these sisters have not written their stories down. They have not revealed their stories precisely because they were educated very much in a culture of humility, in a culture of uh, not being boastful or not speaking too much about their achievements, which, you know, one understands that from the point of view of humility but uh, with the passage of time a lot of their stories are passing away as well mm. hopefully that might might change in the future that uh, this documentation yeah. there yeah so your editorial this week was very noted as always you might say Michael uh, in it you recall a recent story on Joe Duffy's Liveline programme where a woman was quite disgruntled about having to make a donation of 100 euro to the church when her child was making a sacrament but you did also very bluntly remind that parishes don't sustain themselves through Hail Marys. What's your view on this issue here? Because it is very contentious. It's very contentious. And of course, you know, when you mention Liveline, Liveline, of course, has become the great court of uh, public opinion. Uh, we can all hear Joe Duffy uh, sighing along as people ring in with uh, their various stories, trying to subject people, quite often priests, to uh, to that court of public opinion. The issue here is in a parish in Wicklow, where for the administration of the sacrament, they're asking people for a registration fee of 100 euro. And people are saying, oh, this is... Is objectionable the sacraments surely should be free and the sacraments of course are free but let's pull back for a second what's going on in this parish the parish has employed two full-time pastoral workers as sacramental coordinators because we are dealing with a situation now where in a previous generation you could have thought well the kids will learn something at home about the sacrament uh, they'll learn something there about their first holy communion about first confession that's no longer the case in many homes, uh, even if the children are baptized, even if the parents profess that they are Catholic, they're not regular attenders at church. They're not passing on the faith in the way that it was in previous generations. So that's why it's necessary for the parishes to employ the sacramental coordinators. Well, you know what? Big surprise. The sacramental coordinators have families of their own, so they need salaries as well. So. What the parishes are trying to do is they're trying to spread the cost of this. And it doesn't seem to me to be unreasonable to ask parents to contribute in this way. This is set alongside a survey from EBS Building Society that's saying the average family is going to spend €970 on First Holy Communion, with some families set to spend up to €2,700 on First Holy Communion. Since the ceremony is the most important part of the occasion, it doesn't seem to me unrealistic that for the preparation for that sacrament and for the preparation of that child's lifelong faith journey that there would be a contribution made to the expense of that. Why, for example, should it be the parishioners who attend Mass on a weekly basis that pay for the expense of everything? Because already you have the situation where the upkeep of the church, the light, the heating, that is being paid for by the small number of people who are in Mass week in, week out. And what you might call occasional visitors don't seem to notice that there's a cost in the upkeep of the church. Now, 
this is always a dilemma for parishes. You know, don't get me wrong. This is not black and white because, and the dilemma priests are faced with is they want to be generous with the sacraments. They want to be generous to the spontaneous requests that people have for their children to receive the sacraments while at the same tr- time trying to say to them, that requires a little bit of buy-in from you. And there's not a priest in this country who have a family are struggling will demand or insist that a priest that a a family pay that 100 euro that just doesn't happen Uh, priests all around the country are conscious of things like that but it is trying to say to people if you are going to spend the best part of a thousand euro on this be it you know in terms of uh, buffet receptions in terms of uh, dresses in some circumstances fake tan Irish dancing hairdos then it's not it's not unrealistic to make a contribution for the for the sacramental preparation why do you think though there's a difference in society that you know you voluntarily maybe make a purchase somewhere in any store and you're expected you know to pay to provide some monetary input there why does it differ? Why should it differ from the church? Well, you see, the church is a little bit like the wallpaper. You know, mm. it's been there for so long. Mm. Uh, people never really imagine a time without it. And uh, also, because they're largely disengaged from the church, they have this perception that the Catholic Church is an organization with lots of money. They don't appreciate that their local parish is struggling. They don't appreciate that donations are down. The number of people have not returned to Mass uh, post-COVID, as were there before the, uh, the, the, the pandemic. So I think people find it difficult to... To, uh, to to marry those things together, I, I think that's where the uh, that's that's where the challenge is. A a, a priest of my acquaintance, uh, he always uh, tells me when uh, a couple is getting married, they say to him, "How much do I owe you for the the wedding, Father?" And he always says to them, "Well, of course the sacraments are free, but if you'd like to give me a contribution for my time, I suggest you give me ten percent of what okay. you spent on flowers." Yeah, <laughs> which is usually quite a hefty donation. Yeah. <laughs> Turning now uh, to last weekend, and it's an event you and I both had the very privilege, a very great privilege of attending. It was the pro-life dinner, the annual pro-life dinner in the Burlington Hotel. I remember it. I will always remember it now. It's a fantastic event, uh, full of young people, so much vibrancy and vitality there. Um, and it was just great to talk to young people about their pro-life uh, ideology, about their pro-life beliefs and talk openly and without any prejudice. What did you take away from that? Because there were some fantastic speakers as well there who are really committed to the cause. And in terms of the ambience, what was the ambience like for you? Oh, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, look, I'm very old at this stage, Brandon. So I was particularly moved by the number of young people and also Michael I think I saw you up jiving a few times <laughs> that's that, that, that's for the parental advisory edition <laughs> of this podcast and I was really impressed and really pleased by the, the vibrancy of the young people but also how reflective it was of contemporary Ireland yeah. uh, you see young people there of African heritage young people there of Indian heritage young people there of Central European heritage all of these new communities who have made their homes in Ireland in, uh, in, in recent decades and probably someone of your age that that's not so remarkable because uh, you've grown up in that. But I grew up in a very monocultural, monoethnic, uh, monoreligious Ireland. So, you know, for me to see all of these people from very, very diverse backgrounds coming together and also to see their their joy, their happiness, their enthusiasm at a time. Because, I mean, let's face it, we received a thumping defeat in the pro-life referendum uh, a few years ago. I mean, a two to one defeat for the legalization of abortion. So that really was uh, a difficult moment but there was no sense of despondency there from the pro 
pro-life movement and I was particularly pleased to see a real hero of mine there Lord David Alton of Liverpool I grew up as a little boy uh, uh, this is how boring my life was I grew up reading Catholic newspapers and David Alton was always a regular feature in Catholic newspapers for all of his pro-life advocacy but also his advocacy against the Communist Party of China and the oppression there of the Uyghur people for example the oppression of the people of Hong Kong and Lord Alton has always been a huge champion of human dignity so it was really really wonderful to see him there and you know the other side to this because the dinner had a very important motivation. It was fundraising for the pro-life movement. It was there to hear about Lord Alton's advocacy. But also, as it was an Irish occasion, there was a huge social element to it as well. So it was just great to see everyone getting together there to kind of, uh, you know, reacquaint themselves with one another, to share experiences and to share that passion for the pro-life movement. Because sometimes if you look at the mainstream media, you would think this is an issue that's mm. uh, over and done with. This is an issue that is dead and gone. But I think those young pro-life activists in particular who are really trying to transform the hearts and the cultures of uh, the, 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 the world in which they live, their peers, uh, I think they very much show that uh, this is very much an ongoing issue. And as the case from the United States shows in terms of the overturning of Roe versus Wade a couple of years ago. This is a battle actually that's never over. Mm, mm. So finishing on a more lighthearted note, the Pope has been battling with conservatives of late, but in an unusual twist last week, he met with another man recognised for his combative connotations. But this meeting with actress Sylvester Sloan was much more benign or so I hear, Michael. There wasn't a, a knockout blow or anything, was there? No, certainly not. I think the, the Stallone family, or as they would call them, of course, in their native Italy, the Stallones, uh, I think were very, very pleased to uh, go to the Vatican. They are, of course, a Catholic family and from a large kind of uh, Italian Catholic dynasty in the United States. It was clear they were very, very moved by the opportunity to to meet the Pope and uh, Mrs. Uh, Stallone Sylvester's wife uh, had an opportunity I mean to have so many rosaries that she evidently had brought to be blessed by the Holy Father and it was really really a uh, a great moment of levity because so much of what the, the Holy Father is involved in is so is so burdensome and uh, so bureaucratic so just to uh, ju- just to meet uh, someone like that in that circumstances with all of his family there as well I'm sure that was a great moment of relief for the Pope and I know it was obvious looking at the, the footage that uh, Sylvester Stallone was very impressed by it as well. Perhaps one thing he might be less impressed by would be the fact that uh, Pope Francis, who of course is 86, said he grew up watching uh, Sylvester Stallone's films. Well, Pope Francis was 33 before Mr. Stallone appeared in his first film. So uh, perhaps, you know, the, the Pope was a little bit late to those films when he was working with the, the Jesuits in uh, in Argentina. But it was clearly a beautiful moment. And you can tell that Pope Francis really enjoys these meetings with actors and celebrities as well. Not for the sake of celebrity, but he sees these people as actors for good around the world, agents for good around the world. He wants to engage them on issues like climate change, tackling poverty, the sustainable development goals, all of these things that are so important to the Holy See's international advocacy and uh, people like Sylvester Stallone can add their voice to. And we've seen the Pope in the past meeting people like Leonardo DiCaprio uh, as well for exactly the same reason. Mm. Well, here's hoping that the Pope may be confused if I was just alone with Kirk Douglas or something like that. Perhaps. Yeah. Michael Kelly, interesting as always. Thank you very much for joining Thanks, us. Brandon. Thank you.